I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to this week's episode. This week we're traveling to the southeastern part of the United States to America's oldest town, St. Augustine, Florida. I know some of you are probably wondering when I'm going to be covering aliens again. I have not brushed them off, even though it's not my favorite topic because they terrify me. I have actually just about finished research into an alien abduction story and I really enjoyed the book that I read. And instead of rushing into it, I wanted to make sure that I do it justice. So I have this one in progress that I should have ready in a couple of weeks. It might end up being a two-parter. I'm not sure. I won't really know until I start getting into typing up the notes. But it's a pretty fascinating story. Semi-well-known in alien abduction circles. So look forward to that here in the next few weeks. Also for you Bigfoot fans out there, just a little reminder that the Whitehall New York Sasquatch Festival is happening September 24th. That's a Saturday. Lurk is already signed up. It was a pretty awesome time last year. So if you're in the area, I strongly encourage you to come check it out. Last year, they even had a Bigfoot beer garden, and I was actually so busy I wasn't able to get over there, which was unfortunate, but everything that I heard said that it was excellent. But anyway, let's get on with our topic. We are going to be covering some of the hauntings that have happened in and around St. Augustine. I personally have been to St. Augustine, Florida. I managed a day trip as part of a longer road trip. It's a gorgeous town and one I definitely want to visit again when I'm able to spend more than just a day there. As I mentioned, St. Augustine is the oldest city in America. The city was founded on September 8, 1565 by Spanish explorers. In 1565, the Spanish decided to destroy the French outpost located in what is now Jacksonville, Florida. Spaniards landed in St. Augustine. The French went to attack St. Augustine, but they were thwarted by severe storms that ravaged the French naval forces. Spain then marched its troops to Fort Caroline, where they easily overwhelmed the lightly defended French garrison that only had a skeleton crew of 20 soldiers and about a hundred other people. Spaniards killed most of the people, sparing about 60 women and children. Bodies of the victims were hung in trees with a note that read, hanged not as Frenchmen, but as Lutherans. And Lutherans were basically the equivalent of heretics, because they weren't Catholic. Then they returned to St. Augustine, where it was discovered shipwrecked soldiers from the French ships had come ashore. The Spaniards took them prisoner and killed all but a few professed Catholics and some Protestant workers with useful skills. 
Basically, if you were Catholic, you were good. Otherwise, you were a heretic. Also, I really paraphrase that history. In addition to the Spain-French issue, the town was also sacked and burned by privateer Sir Francis Drake, plus some other pirates and some natives. In 1671, construction of the Fort Castillo de San Marcos was started and eventually completed in 1695. It was built to protect Spain's claims in the New World, and at over 325 years old, it is the oldest and largest masonry structure of its kind in the continental United States. It's also going to be the first location for ghost stories, in case you were wondering. The Castillo de San Marcos has flown the flags of five different countries over its limestone walls. Fifteen battles and sieges have been waged at this military fortress that served as a stronghold during wars between England and France, England and America, and America's Union North and Confederate South. Three signers of the Declaration of Independence were kept there during the British ownership, and after the Revolution it was used to house Native American prisoners and eventually taken off the active fortification list in the early 1900s. So with such a long history, it's not surprising that it has a couple of spirits roaming the grounds. Castillo de San Marcos was home to more foul play than initially thought, however. Decades after the Spanish occupation, a hidden room was discovered within a wall in the Castillo's dark lower chambers. A heavy American cannon fell through the floor, revealing a room containing ashes and human bones. Some believe this could have been a room used for torture during the gruesome Spanish Inquisition. One of the Castillo's best-known ghost stories involves a love triangle between Spanish Colonel Garcia Marti, his wife Mari Marti, and Captain Manuel Abuela. Abella. Abelia. Whatever. In 1784, during the Second Spanish Occupation, Colonel Marti was the fort's commanding officer. The colonel had a lovely and beautiful wife who was much younger than he was, and her name was Mary. Mary had one flaw. She liked looking at other men. Also stationed in town was a member of the colonel's detachment who was, of course, quite handsome, a captain named Manuel Abella. Some considered him the most handsome bachelor in St. Augustine, and perhaps all of Florida. He, of course, like everyone on the planet, also had a flaw in that he was basically a player. It was said his incredible good looks and his silken tongue made him remarkably lucky with the ladies. I don't really know what silken tongue means. I'm going to assume that he just had a very flowery way of talking. It could mean something else entirely. I don't really know. Anyway, he, of course, was arrogant and not very discerning about what women he pursued. So, of course, when Captain Abella and Senora Marti laid eyes on each other, caution was thrown to the wind. At first, they managed to keep their affair a secret. At the time, the British and Spanish governments existed in St. Augustine side by side, which kept the colonel and other high-ranking officials pretty busy. But inevitably... Rumors started, and eventually they made their way to Colonel Marty. 
his suspicions and temper were fueled when he claimed to smell his wife's perfume on Abella's uniform. So the colonel told his wife he had a meeting with the governor, and that it would be a long meeting and not to wait up for him, and he left. Mary, not using much intelligence, and honestly she really doesn't seem to be real bright, quickly sent word to Captain Abella, and he of course, equally stupid, hurried to her side. The colonel, and I think we all know what's going to be happening here, he had been waiting for this moment, and he burst in on the lovers. He had them both chained in the dungeons of the Castillo until he could decide what to do. Days went by as he brooded and grew angry over having his masculine pride damaged. Unable to stand the smirks and whispers, he went over to the Castillo and silently watched workmen wall up the dungeon with this coquina stone blocks while his wife and trusted captain screamed in terror. No one knows if the governor knew what the colonel did or if anyone questioned him about the sudden disappearance of his wife and the captain. History does not record the event. Many years later, July 21st, 1833, an engineer broke through the wall and was overcome by powerful, sweet fragrance of Mary Marty's perfume. And there, before him, hung two skeletons chained to the wall. People today say that in the area of the dungeon, there is a strange light and the faint smell of sweet perfume. Ghostly reports from the grounds of the Castillo describe a female apparition in a white dress, believed to be the forlorn spirit of Senora Marti. Other spiritual sightings include the ghost of a Seminole seemingly leaping to freedom from the high fortress walls. Night watchmen at the Castillo, now a U.S. national park, have also reported seeing ghosts of Spanish soldiers patrolling the grounds. There's also the apparition of a Spanish soldier standing at the edge of the fort, looking out to sea during sunrise and sunset. There have also been reports of lights coming from a fixture in one of the watchtowers that does not currently have electricity running to it. In the dungeon, people have said they feel cold hands touching and grabbing them, and others have felt queasy and cold walking through. Personally, I will admit that I felt the queasy and the cold sensation when I was touring the fort. Our next stop is the Huguenot Cemetery, the first public cemetery and the only one that offered burial for Anglo-Americans. It was acquired by the Presbyterian Church in 1832 and maintained by them until 1884 when it was closed. It holds about 436 graves. I love how that says about but it's precisely 436. And it's considered the most haunted cemetery in St. Augustine and is often referred to as Spirit Central. One of the ghosts seen in the cemetery is that of a young girl believed to be around the age of 14. The girl died from yellow fever and her body was dumped at the old city gates. When no one came to claim the body of the child, she was buried in the cemetery in a pauper's grave but she's not at rest. Many have seen her ghost floating amongst the trees, and she's also been known to wave to the guests she encounters. At night, she's most often seen between midnight and 2 a.m., and is always described as wearing a flowy white gown. The most famous ghost in the cemetery 
is that of Judge John B. Stickney. Judge Stickney was well-liked in town and known for offering free legal advice and services to his neighbors. He died in 1882 from yellow fever and was buried there in the cemetery. His children were left orphaned after his death as their mother had died some time before. The children were sent north to live with relatives. Eventually, when the children were grown, they opted to have their father's remains moved north to Washington, D.C., to be closer to them. When the gravediggers who were exhuming the body took a short break, they made the mistake of leaving the casket open, and grave robbers stole the judge's gold teeth and other valuables that were buried with him. And while his body went north, his ghost stayed behind. He now roams the cemetery day and night. His tall, dark figure is seen searching amongst the graves, looking for someone or something, perhaps looking for his gold teeth or those who stole them. Some of the other ghostly phenomena that goes on includes disembodied laughter of a man and visitors feeling as though they're being stalked. They hear the crunching of leaves and rustling of bushes, but when they turn to look, nothing and no one is there. But it's not just forts and cemeteries that are haunted in St. Augustine. There are many hauntings in the surrounding historical buildings. One such property is Flagler College. Henry Flagler, the American industrialist and founder of Standard Oil, the man who would later be known as the father of South Florida, decided to spend the winter months in St. Augustine. In 1879, Flagler's wife, Mary, had fallen gravely ill, and the doctors advised Henry to take her to Florida. Mary died in 1881, but Flagler had by then fallen in love with the wild and unruly state. Henry remarried his second wife, Alice, and while honeymooning, they attended the Ponce de Leon Festival in St. Augustine. A year later, he returned with grandiose plans to develop St. Augustine into the American Riviera for the country's elite. By the turn of the century, he had transformed the town and changed it forever. He built the Ponce de Leon Hotel, which eventually became Flagler College, the Cordova, which became government offices, and the Alcazar that later became Leitner Museum. He also paved streets, built a baseball field, established a bus line, built a laundry and dairy for his hotels, built a Presbyterian and Methodist church, donated land for Catholic and Baptist churches, and built a subdivision north of the hotels. But not everybody appreciated him. Some considered him a bully and a pompous ass. Flagler died in Palm Beach, and his body was shipped to St. Augustine to lie in state in the rotunda of the Ponce de Leon Hotel, then to be buried in the Memorial Presbyterian Church. May 30, 1913, Flagler's body was getting ready to be carried to the church for burial, when suddenly the great doors of the rotunda slammed shut. After everyone calmed down, the procession continued. Later that day, while a janitor cleaned up the rotunda and happened to look at a tile on the rotunda floor, he saw on the tile a thumbnail-sized image of the face of Henry Flagler. The tile is said to still be there today. In 1968, the Ponce de Leon became Flagler College. 
considered one of the country's finest small liberal art colleges. In 1980, a man named Mark attended the college there and stayed in a room on the third floor, not far from the rotunda. Every day he passed through the rotunda on his way to and from classes and meals. It wasn't long before he heard the stories of ghosts that roamed the halls and about Henry Flagler. He didn't believe any of it. But one evening, with nothing better to do, he went to find the tile with Flagler's face and was shocked to actually find it. As a joke, every day he passed the tile, he would rub it and invite old Henry to come visit him. One Wednesday, with his friends, he made his stop at the tile and said, Come on, Henry, come on up and visit. Everyone (laughs) laughed and they went their separate ways. We all know what's going to happen, right? I mean, this is not really the wisest thing to do. I've done it on ghost investigations. I do not do it where I live. Okay, maybe. (laughs) Kind of I do it when I make EVPs. But that's slightly different. I'm a professional. Anyway, Mark invites Henry to visit him. Mark then goes to his room, tosses his books on his desk, and while he was facing his desk, he felt someone enter his room. He wasn't really surprised because he had actually left the door open. Come on in, he said, and he turned around. And no one was there. He stood there as still as possible for a few seconds, not sure what was happening. And then the door closed. Henry? Henry, is that you? He asked, not as confident or as cocky as he had talked in the rotunda. Then he was surrounded by what he described as an overwhelming presence. Then the door opened, and he felt like he was alone again. Mark closed the curtains, turned off the lights, and according to the story, left and never went back to St. Augustine. Henry's ghost isn't the only one there at the college. You'll remember that Henry remarried a woman named Alice. Alice, or Ida Alice, as her friends called her, was referred to as a spunky, extravagant, and strawberry blonde. She was pretty and lively and quite popular, though sometimes her behavior was described as erratic. She apparently became insane and was institutionalized. Legend says that she went crazy from playing with a Ouija board and died in a mental hospital, raving, violent, and mad. In more recent years, a young woman moved into Flagler College in the east wing of the building. She was said to resemble Ida Alice quite a bit. Shortly after her arrival, the ghost of a pretty strawberry blonde woman was seen moving through the halls. The ghost soon settled in the room of this young woman. The presence wasn't evil, but it was unnerving. In the middle of the night, the young woman would wake up with Ida Alice standing at the foot of her bed, watching her in silence. In the evening, when she would return from studying in the library, the young woman would see the face of Ida Alice in the door as she opened it. She asked the college for another room, but that didn't help, and she ended up transferring to a college in Orlando before the end of her first semester. And it really shouldn't come as a surprise that a man such as Henry Flagler was known to have several mistresses. One of them, an actress, is said to have died in the hotel. Ida would constantly barge in, and Flagler would grab his mistress and hide her in a fourth-floor room that was completely covered in mirrors. 
The room was, in fact, a psychomantium, a place designed to not only alter one's mood, but to also contact the dead. Flagler apparently loved seances and the ethereal arts. One day, the mistress apparently had an experience in the room, though no one knows what exactly happened. But she was driven mad. That very night, the girl went and hung herself from a chandelier. Nowadays, the room is used for storing equipment, because when it was repurposed for housing, the students wouldn't spend more than a month in the place. They alleged that screams in the middle of the night would rock them awake, or that their beds would shake uncontrollably. A student told this story from her freshman year at Flagler. When I was a freshman, I lived in the dorms. One night, while I was sleeping, my roommate said that she saw someone standing at the foot of my bed, all in black. I wore a lot of black clothes, so she assumed it was me, and tried to get my attention. She said that the figure didn't move, didn't react to her talking, she just kept looking at me. From that moment forward, until I moved out of the dorms, this lady, all in black, just stood in the corner across from my bed. She never bothered me or made anything happen, but she always stared at me when I was sleeping or falling asleep at night. This woman in black is purported to be Flagler's mistress. Her ghost is often seen on the top floor of the West Wing. There's also said to be the ghost of a small boy whose shadow is seen in the hallway. And as a final comment on the Flagler College, I'll leave you with this eyewitness account. The only thing that scared me into shivers was a morning in November when I was showering and the door seemed to slam and suddenly the light burned out. Now everyone knows that you're probably most vulnerable in the shower. I was petrified. I jumped out of the shower, ran the 12 or so feet to the door, and ran out in my towel. I quickly threw on a t-shirt and ran outside to the rotunda where all the lights were on and no one seemed frantic about a blackout. It never happened again, but it was enough for me. If you want a semi-active night, go sleep in room 300 in Ponce Hall. So now the St. Augustine Lighthouse is going to be our last stop on this tour, and the location has been referred to as the Mona Lisa of Paranormal Sites. I believe that was coined by Ghost Hunters. The television show, not generic Ghost Hunters, but like Jason Hall's. I don't know. If he listens, he can contact me and correct me if I'm wrong. So the earliest form of the lighthouse was actually a wooden watchtower that was built by the Spaniards in the 1500s. In 1589, an Italian cartographer, or map maker, made maps of Sir Francis Drake's raid on St. Augustine, and he noted on the map wooden watchtowers on Anastasia Island. The tower on the north end eventually became the St. Augustine Lighthouse. The tower went through many changes throughout the centuries, and after being darkened during the Civil War, on June 1, 1867, the old Spanish watchtower once more became a functioning lighthouse with the return of its light. Nevertheless, it soon became clear that the structure would soon lose the battle with Mother Nature as the sea continued to erode the land around the lighthouse. After several reports to the United States Lighthouse Board, referencing the erosion and encroaching seas, 
Congress approved the money for a new St. Augustine Lighthouse Tower. The construction of the tower began in 1871. Superintendent of Lighthouse Construction, Hezekiah Pitty, moved from Cape Elizabeth, Maine, with his family, to oversee construction of the new St. Augustine Lighthouse. Hezekiah lived on site with his wife Mary and their children, Mary Adelaide, Eliza, Edward, and Carrie. Just as children would do, the Pity children turned the construction site into a playground, inviting the children of the workers into their fun. By 1873, only the foundation and 42 feet of the 165-foot tower were completed. A railway cart moved the supplies from supply ships docked at Salt Run to the building site. Riding the cart down to the water was a favorite pastime of the Pity children. They used the cart as a Victorian-era roller coaster, riding the cart to the water and bringing it back up to the site to ride it again. Only a wooden board at the end of the rail stopped the cart from tipping over into the water. On July 10, 1873, the three pity sisters, Mary, 15, Eliza, 13, and Carrie, 4, along with an unknown African-American girl, age 10, whose father may have worked on the site, were riding in the cart as normal. But the wooden board that stopped the cart from going into the water was not in place. The cart carrying the girls flipped into the water, trapping the girls underneath. Mr. Dan Sessions, a young African-American worker, witnessed the tragic event and raced to the water. When he reached the cart, using all of his strength, he lifted it from atop the girls. By this time, three of the four girls had drowned. The only survivor was the youngest, Carrie. In the days after the accident, the construction site as well as the town shut down for the funeral of the girls. Following the funeral, the Pity family returned to Maine to lay their daughters to rest in their hometown. Staff researchers have not been able to find the final resting place of the young African-American girl. In the 145 years since the accident, strange occurrences have been repeatedly attributed to the spirits of the girls. While the children are by no means the only tragedy that occurred in the home, the girls are some of the most active spirits around. Psychics contact staffers frequently, and recently one told them about a young African-American girl's name that was Ellie or Eleanor. As playful spirits, the girls enjoy playing hide-and-seek, sometimes including unsuspecting people. One night in the dark lighthouse tower, a lone staff member was closing up for the night. He heard giggling at the top of the tower. <laughs> Thinking that he had left someone on top, he returned to the top to find it empty. As he began to head back down the tower, he heard the same giggles below him. Descending to the bottom, he once again found that there was no one there. Another evening, a female guest on a ghost tour was standing on the first step of the metal lighthouse staircase. When she took her first step to climb the tower, she found that her shoelace had been tied to the staircase. On another tour, a guide found a group of young women in the basement of the keeper's home. One of the young women had rented an EMF meter to measure the electrical activity caused by spirits. The young woman holding the meter asked the girls if they wanted to play hide-and-seek. The meter spiked. The woman wandered the basement searching for the hiding girls, 
finally finding meter activity under the spiral staircase leading to the main floor. Excitedly, she said she found them and asked if they wanted to play again. Like before, the meter spiked. Once again, the young women searched the basement for the girls, and after several minutes found electrical energy near the children's play table. About that time, another set of guests came into the basement, and reportedly the energy dissipated. The girls sometimes appear to people in fully formed apparitions. Several years ago, during the day, a guest was exploring the maritime hammock trails and came upon a young girl in a Victorian outfit sitting on a bench reading a book. As she began to ask the girl a question, another group came up from the opposite direction. Distracted by the group, the woman looked away for only a moment and turned back to find the little girl on the bench was gone. In a similar instance, a woman on a ghost tour approached another woman to compliment her daughter's behavior on the tour. Confused, the woman said she had no daughter. The other woman then told her that a little girl had been standing by her side most of the evening. There were no children on the tour that evening at all. Workers will often discover previously bolted doors from the night before are hanging wide open the next day. They often tell tales of the racket of children's laughter in the middle of the night. Music boxes sold in the gift shop will mysteriously pop open and start playing all by themselves. Tour guides report increased incidences of being touched or seized by shades while showing visitants around. If anything can be said, it's that the children now get to play long after dark. Employees of St. Augustine Lighthouse still hear their giggles ringing out at night and have been known to find the dirty child-sized footprints on the floors the next morning. But children aren't the only ghosts at the lighthouse. One story involves a relief lighthouse keeper living in the home in the 1950s who reported hearing footsteps upstairs. He went to investigate, but no one was up there. The head keeper at the time was James Pippin. He served from 1953 to 1955 and was the last keeper to live at the light station. Pippin initially lived in the keeper's house, as all the previous keepers had done, but he moved to the much smaller 1941 Coastal Lookout Building, swearing that the big house was haunted and he would not stay another night in it. In 1955, the lighthouse lamp was fully automated, and the United States Coast Guard replaced the lighthouse keepers with a position called lamplighter. The local lamplighter had all the duties of a lightkeeper, but did not live on site. In 1955, after the light became fully automated, David Swain became the, lamp, became the lamplighter and lived nearby. It was said that Mr. Swain never ventured outside at night without a gun and a flashlight. One evening, the electric motor running the beacon had a series of failures. The first time it happened, David Swain walked towards the lighthouse, heading in to fix the motor. It was the middle of the night, and it was pitch black outside. While he made his way to the lighthouse, he heard footsteps on the gravel behind him. He stopped and turned, but the footsteps stopped, and no one was there. When he began walking again, the footsteps followed close behind. He ran to the lighthouse and shut the door, and as he went up the stairs, he heard footsteps walking on the steps behind him. He reached the top and went in to check on the motor. There were no loose connections, 
or any obvious signs of a problem. He turned the switch off and then back on, and the motor started up and ran smoothly. But Mr. Swain was on edge because he had to go back down and outside. So he took a deep breath and he ran down the steps and out the door. The next night, the motor stopped working again, and again David Swain went over to fix it, this time gun in one hand and flashlight in another. He heard footsteps like before on the gravel and on the stairs. Only the gun and light gave him a little bit more confidence. For three straight nights, the motor malfunctioned, and each time Mr. Swain found nothing wrong with the motor. And as abruptly as the malfunction started, they stopped. Because the new lamplighter didn't live in the keeper's house, the keeper's house was rented for a time. A local man who crafted leather goods, named Dan, rented the property during the 1960s. He tells the story of a friend who stayed at the house with him one night, who woke up in the night with a small girl standing by his bed. She was wearing a long, lacy dress. She stood there several minutes, expressionless, and as he blinked his eyes to look at her, she disappeared. Dan remembered a story about a lightkeeper's daughter who had drowned there on the property. Several weeks later, another friend of Dan's slept in the same room and had no knowledge of the ghost girl sighting. But the next morning, he related the same exact story to Dan. In 1970, after standing empty for many years, the keeper's house burned under mysterious circumstances, gutting the home, leaving only the coquina basement and a few charred timbers. St. John's County purchased the shell of the building with the intention of demolishing it for safety reasons. However, 16 women in the All-Volunteer Junior Service League of St. Augustine stepped in, raising $1.2 million over the next 15 years to restore and renovate the Keeper's House, Lighthouse Tower, and the original Fresno Lens, a feat never before accomplished. The group added the building to the National Register of Historic Places with the help of a local historian. During the renovation, both construction workers and the JSL volunteers reported numerous unexplained incidents in the home. Beams fell for no reason, a scaffold collapsed, and one workman was seriously injured by a falling spike. After spending only short periods on the job, several workers quit and refused to go near the place. The basement was a particularly active area for ghostly encounters being the only part of the home that had not completely burned. Perhaps the pity children liked to play there. Today, you can apparently still feel spooky presence. It may be tempting to disregard the lingering odor of cigars, even despite the site being smoke-free. But for anyone who has ever smelled it, or has even seen the too tall, shadowy figure that often accompanies it, they will tell you that the sense of fear and foreboding in the air lingers long after the cigar has faded away. Locals and Lighthouse employees refer to the specter as the man in blue, as he is often seen dressed in a blue jacket and mariner's cap, walking his route up and down the spiral staircase or looking down from the catwalk above. One witness said, when he appears, he makes life a living hell for the workers, 
One lighthouse keeper refused to go back to work because the man in blue harassed him for a whole night, chasing him up and down the 219 stairs of the lighthouse. Eventually, the lighthouse duty had to be handed over to the Coast Guard because of this wraith. It's believed that this is the spirit of one of the lighthouse's first keepers named Peter Rasmussen. He was known for his meticulous eye and watchful manner of maintaining the lighthouse. He was also known for his love of cigars. Others, meanwhile, maintain that the poltergeist is that of another lighthouse keeper. The man, heartbroken by his solitude, allegedly hanged himself in the tower and was only discovered the next night when the lighthouse failed to illuminate the coast. Visitors and staff describe the overwhelming smell of cigar smoke on the landing of the tower, despite the fact that smoking is prohibited on the grounds. At night, the current keeper constantly says he can hear boots coming up the stairs, but when he turns around, there's no one there. Others have seen and heard another lighthouse keeper named Joseph Andrew at the top of the tower, and some think he might be the man in blue. His presence at the lighthouse is easy to explain when you learn that in 1859, he fell to his death while painting the outside of the tower. It seems his spirit never left, and is often seen looking out to sea from the top. Maria Mestre de los Dolores stands out for more reasons than just her recent ghostly sightings. In 1859, she became not only the first woman to serve in the U.S. Coast Guard, but she also became the first Hispanic American woman to command a federal shore installation, the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Her appointment came after her husband, the formerly mentioned caretaker Joseph Andrew, met his fateful end. Maria was heartbroken, left on Anastasia Island to follow in the very same footsteps her husband had once walked, and even was known to stand at the edge of the catwalk, looking down to where her husband's body had once laid, broken. She can still be found there on occasion, leaning over the railing and imagining what those last few seconds of Joseph's life had been like. I personally visited the lighthouse on my trip and managed to climb to the catwalk, and I will be sharing my photos on our social media accounts. As you may have guessed... This is going to do it for this episode. Remember, you can find Lurk wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, or you can find us at lurkpodcast.com. On the website, you can also find links to all our social media accounts, so if you want to check out those photos, make sure you like or follow us somewhere. Facebook and Instagram are the most active. If you have a moment, please give us a five-star review if your podcast platform allows for that sort of thing. It helps us be recommended to others with the same interests. And until next time, don't ride on any questionable rail carts and keep lurking.